0: Hey there, welcome to the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell. Today's episode is a long one, but please stay with me until the end. Trust me when I say it's worth every minute of your time. I'm joined today by Dr. Paul LeBlanc. Dr. LeBlanc has spent more than 17 years as president of Southern New Hampshire University. If you haven't heard of SNHU until now, you're not alone. I hadn't heard of it either until a mutual connection introduced me to Dr. LeBlanc. It's definitely worth mentioning that Southern New Hampshire University was number 12 on Fast Company Magazine's World's 50 Most Innovative Companies list, and was the only university included. Forbes Magazine has listed Dr. LeBlanc as one of its 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. After listening to today's episode, you will understand why. During our conversation, Dr. LeBlanc talks about the key to building resiliency in young people, why finding the right college fit is not as simple as it sounds, and why the choice of college major is far more important than the choice of school. Dr. LeBlanc discusses the three goals he sets every day and the reasons we need more flexibility in higher education. If you're like me, you'll be amazed when you hear about the innovative, competency-based education model happening at SNHU's College for America. Be sure to stay tuned until the end when Dr. LeBlanc shares the one most important question that parents should be asking when helping their teen choose a college. Now let's get started. Hi, Paul. Thanks so much for being here today on the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Betsy.
0: I'm so, as I said, I'm so thrilled that you accepted my invitation. Uh, as per a recommendation from another mutual connection, um, he suggests, Matthew Wonder suggested I reach out to you, and I'm so glad I did. For my audience, I could go on and on about all the amazing things you've done throughout your career, including your current role as president at Southern New Hampshire University. But if you wouldn't mind just taking a minute or two and just introducing yourself to my audience, that would be great.
1: Sure, I'm Paula Blank. I'm the president of Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, been so for 18 years, which is sort of hard to believe. And people uh, may know us and think of us as an online institution, which we are. And oftentimes you think about online students as working adults, which is mostly true. But we also have a campus in Manchester, New Hampshire with some 4,000 students, a bucolic, beautiful little sort of New England campus. And we also have, interestingly, a growing number of traditional age students, not the working adult, but the 18 to 22-year-old enrolled with us online. Actually, 30,000 of them, larger than the largest flagship university in most states. So online, we have about 170,000 students, to put that in perspective. Uh, before SNHU, I was president for seven years of a very small little liberal arts college in Southern Vermont called Marble College. And uh, before that, did three years uh, heading up a technology startup company for Houghton Mifflin, which is one of the big publishers back in the 90s. So yeah, that's my story. I'm a first-generation college student, my, an immigrant. My parents uh, and my family immigrated from what some people would call French Appalachia, a hardscrabble farming village in New Brunswick, Canada, And when I was three. So uh, first time I found to go to college, immigrant story, and it changed everything for me.
0: And what an interesting and diverse background. And you could probably say that all of those things add up to putting you in a great position for where you are today, right? Because a lot of the students that you encourage to attend SNHU are first-gen college students and might have come from you know, not so obvious backgrounds to attend college. Plus you spent time in technology, which prepares you for like an online environment for school. I mean, all of those things, right. Add up to kind of the experience of where you are today. And when you were, I'm curious, when you were younger, what were your aspirations when you were in high school? What was your high school experience like?
1: You know, actually, I'll sort of push it back a little bit further because there's one critical conversation when I was in sixth grade with my teacher, Mr. Mark Schlafman, and my mother, my parents had eighth grade educations. My mom worked in a factory. My father was a day laborer. But in that parent-student conversation, he, uh, Mr. Schlafman said something to my mother, which he held on to like, like a dream. He said, Paul could go to college someday. And we lived in a neighborhood where nobody went to college. We were in a family where nobody went to college. And on weekends, my mom supplemented our income by cleaning the houses of families in this very wealthy suburb of Boston called Weston. Still, I think, the highest per capita income in in Massachusetts. And, you know, she would pluck me down the libraries, these beautiful libraries of these palatial homes, and she'd be vacuuming and cleaning. And in her mind, those were the kids that went to college, right? In our family... Um, everyone worked construction or in factories, and a really, really good job was, you know, for the state or the city because I had a pension and you were never going to have to work, you know, worry about your job, et cetera, et cetera. So the aspirations had always been modest. And I think, you know, it was Mr. Schlafman who allowed her to dream kind of a bigger dream for me. And she held on to that. And then it was a succession of teachers. So in high school, you know, Mrs. Elizabeth Collins, who I still stay in touch with, if you can believe it. uh, She must have been right out of college when I had her as a teacher. Uh, I spoke at her retirement event not so, so long ago, but um, you know she instilled in me this sense of not only college, but of a bigger world as she was an inveterate traveler, and she and I still trade travel stories and postcards, and um, she instilled in me that love, and then it was in college, somebody else. So a succession of people, and I I don't know if you've read J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, a book for which I have very harsh criticisms. I, I dislike almost all of it. But I think there are some truths in that book, as there are in almost all stories. And one of them is that uh, his grandmother believed that he could have a better life. And if you remember, if you've read the book, his grandmother's like a crazy, dysfunctional, pistol-wheeling, hard-drinking, swearing. You know, he would say hillbilly, not my language. Um, But she had this belief in him. And I think that was really critical. In fact, I have a friend it's a like much longer answer than in your question as probably wanted. But I have a good friend Matt Beale who heads up child and adolescent psychology psychiatry at Georgetown. And I was asking Matt about resiliency. Like, why do some kids get overcome by the worlds in which they, by no choice of their own, find themselves? And why do other kids overcome? Like what's key there? And he said, you know, lots and lots of research, lots and lots of theories, but his belief comes down to sort of three things that they have some passion, something that they can hang on to. It could be basketball. It could be a sport. It could be anything, but a passion that they've experienced one normal year. So as bad as things get, they know that's not normal. They know what normal looks like, and they can hang on to, like, we need to get back to normal. But probably the single most important thing, at least one person who believes in them. And I think, you know, that was was my mother. I was a series of teachers. I think for most people who... Manage to transform their lives. It's you have to find people who believe in you. Yeah, that's
0: so true. And you're, I've heard stories like this from other people about that teacher, that sure. teacher that changed the trajectory of my life. Whether it was in elementary school, middle school, high school, college, somebody like that. Oftentimes, it's a parent, but I think it's a pretty special situation when it's somebody in education. Um, who yeah, really and at some point, you.
1: developmentally, it needs to be somebody quite often other than your parent because developmentally, you have to sort of break away from your parents and <laughs> all of us who have kids realize that there are some set of years in which our thinking and opinions really are just not discounted automatically. And then you get past right. that, of course.
0: Right, yeah, but, I'm uh, living in that, that
1: yeah. time yeah. right Every now. Every parent but... of an adolescent has some version of this, I suspect.
0: Very true. So how did you end up... Well, first of all, how did you end up in higher ed? I mean, you went from technology into higher ed and then continued throughout the rest of your career and, and now to where you are today. What, what pushed you in that direction?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I, I ended up going to do my undergraduate at a public university, Pran State University in the Boston area. And I had a remarkable teacher mentor. So I said I had a succession of teachers, so in this case, Dr. Helen Heineman, And she um, was a gifted teacher and she also expected a lot, and your best teachers don't just tell you how wonderful you are. your best teachers hold you accountable to your potential. they make you believe you have more potential, they hold you accountable to that. And it was um, in my senior year, pretty late in my senior year of college, when she said to me, "So where are you thinking about for graduate school?" and I said. I'm not thinking about graduate school. Like, it <laughs> was a big deal. Like at college, you know. I said, "Oh no!" And and this is going to sound terribly modest, but so forgive me. But she said, "You know, no, you're one of my best students that I've ever had. Like, you need to you need to keep going." And and I said, "Well, I I don't even know how." And that notion of I don't even know how, is really critical. I mean, so much of what holds young people back, is that they don't. They don't have people to help them navigate the complexity of the FAFSA, the complexity of college choice, the complexity of the admissions process. You know, privileged families have that. They hire college counselors. They go to high schools that have robust college support systems. But a lot of people don't. And, and in some ways, that was even true for me now as a college-educated kid, young person, I should say. So Helen had connections at Boston College, including the chair of the English Department. She called them and said, I've got this kid you've got to take. And she had this funny relationship with Father Joe Alpiar, who later spoke at my inauguration at SNHU. But Father Joe said, Well, send him in. <laughs> so I went in, you know, it's so funny because today we're like, well, the application process, etc. was like, no, nope, fill in application. Let's guys move this through, simpler time. Um, and then the other thing that happened, it was critically important, and this goes to your question, which is at the last minute he said, Hey, I have a teaching assistantship that I have to fill. Sudden opening. Are you interested? I didn't know what teaching assistantship was, and he said, "Look, you're going to teach some courses, but in return, you have free tuition and a stipend." I was like, "I can do that math. I'm an English that teacher, sounds good. That math, yeah." So I was thrown into class with no training, no prep, a pile of books, uh, freshman English class at Boston College, and I discovered that I loved it. I loved teaching. I loved working with students who were barely, barely younger than me. Hmm. Um, uh, but, it, but it was marvelous. And uh, it's a sense of calling. and It is a gift when you can find your calling. And and that's how I would describe it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. What a a great story in in how you ended up there, right? I mean, it was a little bit by chance.
1: Yeah. So, right, the the benefit of having people who believe in you and are stewarding you along, because that's what you essentially did. You know, when I think of a lot about this with students of color or employees of color in my university, they need more than mentors. They need sponsors. Though most of us who have been successful didn't simply have a mentor, we had somebody who proactively shepherded us along, and that's what Helen did for me, um, and that was, a very, that was a very powerful thing. And then just plumb dumb luck. I mean, there was a TA available. I wouldn't have taught. I might have got a master's and done something else. And most of the most successful people I know when they're being candid will admit to, and some of their success was serendipity. It was, you know, there's rarely a straight path to success, twists, turns, detours, right? Never thought I'd do X. And then I discovered why, you know? So, so yes, I was, I was lucky and I was well-sponsored um, and that was great.
0: Well, and how fortunate for everyone at Southern New Hampshire that your path did lead you there because As Fast Company calls you on the world's 50 most innovative companies list. And oh, by the way, the only university included on that list, Um, you've been listed as one of its 15 classroom revolutionaries and one of the most influential people in higher education. And the more I dig into what's happening at Southern New Hampshire University, along with all of the, the programs and College for America and the focus on equity and access, an opportunity. I said this to you before. I'm going to be honest. I have a rising high school senior, and I did not know about Southern New Hampshire University. I'm not sure why. Like Maybe just because it wasn't on our radar because we're in the South. I don't really know. But the more I read about it, I'm like, this is a school I want to send my kid to (laughs) because there's so many great things that are happening there. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, it's always about a matter of fit, isn't it, Betsy? And so clearly, like, if you don't hear about a school, you don't know. And it's interesting to me how serendipitous the college admissions process is. I sometimes think that for traditional age students who are looking at a residential campus, probably the single most important person is the tour guide. Um, Absolutely. You know, <laughs> they make a huge difference. Um And I think students often have a radar for the places, an immediate radar for the places that aren't a good fit. Rarely do I find a student set foot on a campus. They almost immediately go, "Mm, not for me. And, And rarely are they wrong. Rarely do I find if they took more time, they would change their mind. I remember driving my oldest daughter. We went to someplace in upstate New York. It was some hour's drive. We pulled into the parking lot. I turned the car off and she said, we should go. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, look around. I'm not coming here. And wow. You know, and I had to trust her instincts. I mean, I think she let yeah. me get out, get a coffee, and use the men's room. But but that was pretty much the, the the length of our visit. We went to the next school on the list. Um but and I know it's cliche to talk about fit, but fit mat means a whole lot. Right? It's not it's a, it's a one word that captures a great complex chemistry. Now, if we're talking about residential traditional, that's not the People forget that's not the majority of students in America anymore. The majority of students in America are not living on a campus full-time. But, but if your son, you know, intends to do that, amazing choices, amazing variety of schools, and the fit, actually really understanding what he needs. Not, uh. right, because in the end, schools are still in America a kind of one-size-fits-all experience. This, you know ten kids go to institution x they're largely going to have that experience. The school doesn't wrap itself around the students that's we still have a very industrial model of higher education um, so you have to choose well right you you're going to live with that school on its terms by and large
0: yeah, and I've talked about that on the podcast in other episodes about best school it's not about best school it's about best school for you right like the oh my God. The U.S. News and World Reports list—I don't even look at, by the way—but to me, it's about you're exactly what you're saying: it's fit, large or small, urban or rural, you know, on campus, not off cam- on campus, whatever it might be. But I think that's hard. And and the other thing is, I think for parents, a lot of the conversations that I find are happening about higher ed. In in the case of Southern New Hampshire and other schools, like you know, the unlikely movie, by the way. Parents, if you haven't seen it, pay the $3 on Amazon and watch it because it is eye-opening, a documentary about, frankly, a lot of truth of what's going on in higher ed that parents don't know about. And a lot of these conversations are happening at the academic level. So parents aren't necessarily privy to them. I mean, if you're somebody like me, (laughs) who spends all their time in this space and digs, you find it. But I think we get the typical what the school wants you to see, right? The marketing, the beautiful color yeah. marketing brochure and the tour guide. But we don't know the real, the real scoop behind what's a good fit, right? Yep,
1: yeah, exactly right. And, you know, thank you for saying you want your son to look at a school like SNHU. But in some ways I would say when people, when someone says something like this, it was like, I don't know, like I'd have to know so much about your son before. I like we are not an immediately a good fit for anyone. It's really, it depends on who the student is. So one has to know so much about that. And, and what, you know, my old friend, Clay Christensen, very famous Harvard Business School professor who talked about disruptive innovation, known for 40 years, he passed away last year, sadly, lovely, lovely man. But he has a lesser body of research called jobs to be done research. And he would say that anytime someone pays for a service or a product or an experience, they're not buying the thing per se. They're trying to get a job done. So if you, the easiest example here is if you buy a drill, you didn't buy a drill to have a drill. The job you needed done was have a hole. <laughs> so you bought the thing that gets the job done, right? That's the easy example. So it, when I think about parents, the conversation I have to have with parents about their kids, is they try to say, you know, what are the jobs? It's usually more than one. What are the jobs that you want done? So the first thing he says, well, I want a solid academic experience that's going to lead to a good job. I was like, okay, that's a set of questions. And the reality, if you choose well, and by the way, all the research shows that your choice of major is far more important than your choice of school. Most parents don't believe that. <laughs> but for the, for the work thing, for the placement in a job, choice of major and earnings, if the thing that matters to you is that they're going to make good money and have a secure job, choice of major is actually more important than school.
0: Can you elaborate on that a little bit in the sense of because I hear from a lot of parents eh, they're going to go undeclared they'll figure it out when they get there and i don't I call that an expensive experiment, but I'm curious to hear your point of view on that
1: different question right, which is if one of the jobs to be done is helping my child figure out what they want to do, what they want to study, then I would say okay that's a that's a complicated job and Let's talk about all the ways that could happen. One of them is throw them in a school that has lots of choices and let them figure it out. Pretty expensive, not a pretty that's not a plan. <laughs> that's a hope. Um, but there are other ways right There are tools there's a gap year, which is give them more time, let them mature a little bit longer. Gap years are a privilege. not everyone has the means to you know to have a meaningful gap year experience so so I, I think about. That as a job to be done, um, but the other jobs are going to vary so greatly with a young a young man or woman, right? So is the job to be done to take a timid, anxious, and insecure adolescent—describes a lot of them from my experience—and help them build their confidence and kind of and, and help them build a more resilient toolkit and kind of get through that awkward, difficult adolescence into young adulthood. That's a certain kind of job to be done. Um, is, it, is my child a really kind of self-driven, self-possessed, knows how to navigate the world for whatever dint or whatever reasons, kind of is a self-advocate? I can imagine them in a bigger institution because that's not a place most cases are going to hold their hands. So you have got to be pretty strong advocate for yourself. If not, I want them in a smaller institution. For a lot of people, the job to be done is status. Right, so it's what sticker do I get to put in the back window of my car and talk about on the golf course with my buddies? About oh, where's Johnny going? And that feels good to say they're going to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Stanford. Um, that's a very expensive job to be done. It ha- does other things, right? So that's an immediate signal to the labor market that your kid is smart, and that and it almost and fifty percent of that accrues on on the acceptance letter. Almost nothing matters in the next four years. Right When they go to the labor market, someone says, oh, you went into Harvard, you get into Harvard, they assume some things. So we could spend a whole time, we could have a really fun mirror board experiment just putting all the jobs to be done. But in some ways, if I were a college counselor, that's the conversation I'd have is let's talk about your son or daughter and let's go through the jobs that matter most to you. Don't say safety and well-being like that's that's Maslow's hierarchy like okay let's assume they're safe and well-fed and that's that's gonna be everyone's job but what are the things that matter and then also what are the constraints you and they live with an example would be how much debt are you really willing to take on let me tell you where your danger zones are right Right. if you tell me your son or daughter wants to be an early childhood educator and your projected debt is $70,000. I will tell you that is a very bad piece of math. Like, right. let's talk about how to help them realize that dream. Don't send them to the expensive private school that's going to laden them with that amount of debt. Um, right. So I'm, I feel like I'm meandering a little bit here, Betsy. Forgive me. But I think no, this it's is such
0: all a super relevant.
1: Complicated, interesting question. But you got to have clarity about what you seek from that experience
0: yeah and and i actually had i told you this i had michael horn on the podcast episode 15 which was quite a while ago but um he talked about his book choosing college and the mm-hmm. jobs to be done and i love that you're reinforcing that because boy that really resonated with me and i think to your point that's what parents need to be thinking about i just did another episode or an interview with someone and we talk a lot about the journey. It's all about getting them into the college and figuring out how to pay for it. But we don't talk about what happens once they actually get there. Like what happens when it goes off the rails, if it does. So I love that you talk about thinking ahead and being proactive about that. What do you really want to get out of it? And to your point, if it's Ivy League, okay, off you go. But I think for a lot of people, that's not the job, right?
1: Yeah. And look at, it's also These are sad cases, but we know the the times when the Ivy League was not the right place. Mm -hmm. There was a disheartening article, I believe, in the New York Times or the Boston Globe in the last month about you know a young Native American student from you know what sounded like a bucolic, beautiful ranch in the West, I think, of Montana, who committed suicide. I believe at Dartmouth. Right? These are Mm -hmm. terrible situations. The mental health challenges are rampant on campus. Historic highs right now, but but you could argue that. You know, part of what was at least said in the article was he never found a home there. He never felt like he fit in. Um, I really love the work of a sociologist at Brown named Greg Elliott, who writes a lot about mattering. And he was instrumental in getting Brown University to open its first center for first-generation students. Because I think a lot of universities and colleges believe that making money available, removing the financial area kind of gets the job done and I always say to people how to pay for it is just table stakes that just gets you in the game it is not how you play the game or win or lose the game and what Brown recognized I think was and Greg's research showed this is that you take a first-generation college student particularly a first-generation college student for an underserved community or a student of color put them at a place like Brown and there are a million signals every day to say to them in small little ways, you don't really belong here. You're not really part of this. And how do you proactively as an institution make sure that students are welcomed and feel like they matter and that they belong, which is really critical. Um, So one of the things they do at the center, I think this is lovely, is that they, Greg's team, has identified all the faculty and staff who are themselves first-generation college graduates, and they come and meet the students. And it's just like, wait a minute, you know, Professor Luck, I, I didn't know you were first generation. I like I yep. love that. And it really was tough. And they, so now they have a role model, mentor. They can see themselves in the place, and they and, and you're not sugarcoating. You say, yeah, no, it's tough. It's different. You know, when all your friends in the dorm are talking about going off on their ski vacations, and you have to stay around on spring break to work, you know, your work study job to make the finances work, it feels a little crappy yeah Um, i love
0: that that's such a great way to feel include you know make them feel included and and part of a community and and they're very accessible you've got questions we've got answers business leadership ownership and sales can be challenging tune into the accelerate your business growth podcast to learn from the world's experts join me your host diane helbig another thing that I found super endearing about you, you're so accessible to the students. And I I read some of your blog posts. And um, I, I just think that's all so and again, I haven't researched every school from you know, across the coast to coast, but I don't know too many university presidents who are that engaged and close up with students.
1: Well, I mean, I think we all do these jobs differently. I have I've been in this job long enough to have lots and lots of colleagues who I respect and have affection for in our industry presidents and chancellors and I think they all care deep all the ones I know care deeply for students sometimes you know the nature of their job the nature of their institution or how they think about the ways they want to get their work done um just you know does does don't don't sort of provide enough time and space to do that the best ones figure out how to carve Carve that time out, right? Um, I always say that I, you know, my three goals for every day is touch student lives in one way or another. So sometimes that's a conversation, and sometimes it's helping someone with a financial emergency, sometimes it's a policy change that I know will impact students. But I like the ones where it feels very direct, where I get to engage with a student. Second one is learn something new, and then the third is advance the strategic goals of my institution, right? Like that's a good day because it's. Grounded in student experience and success, getting smarter, hopefully at least learning, and then moving things forward for my institution. But but it's the time with students that charge one's batteries, right? If you remember, I described this as a calling. So yeah, you know, it's not different than the doc. My friends who are doctors who bemoan when they move into management that they see patients less often. Mm. Um, I, we? it's It's one of the ironies that sometimes when you move further up into leadership roles, you actually get less of what brought you into that industry in the first place.
0: well, and higher ed is changing so much in the pandemic, I think started to accelerate some of that change, right For so sure. f- from from your point of view, what do you see as far as like what's to come? I know I saw you in another recent interview where you talked about the importance. Of moving away from the one size fits all college education and more toward a learning ecosystem with individualized learning to suit the needs of each learner, do you think college education is moving in that direction?
1: Uh, I think it. I think it will. I think it needs to. Um, if you think about it, I mean, we live in a technological digital age in which personalization now comes to characterize you know one sector of our life after another. Right, if, and and some of it's easy, um, though almost unthinkable 20 years ago. You know, you can go on and kind of custom build the car that you want to buy. Once upon a time, was Henry Ford. you know, you can have any color you want, as long as it's black. Um, <laughs> today, it's like endless choices about these things, right? In the world of medicine, we haven't got to the point quite yet of personalized medicine, but we certainly have moved towards precision medicine. You know, an easy example of that is we used to treat breast cancer in sort of one way, like no matter. If you went in with breast cancer, this is your treatment. It was everyone had the same protocol. And now what we, of course, know, science has shown us, that there are many varieties of breast cancer, each inviting a different treatment protocol. And my job is to make sure with precision that I get you into the right protocol for, for your treatment. In higher education, we still have very much an industrial model. And it's a kind of one-size-fits-all experience called the major. So if you and I go into the same school, and we're both English majors, we'll have different electives, and you may play soccer, and I may be in student government, but but in the end, our learning experience will be a kind of one-size-fits-all thing, and we'll probably do it at the same pace by, you know, assume we both graduate in eight semesters, so that's getting more, more rare. I think where we are moving now in higher education is away from that kind of industrial-age one size fits all model to much greater variety um, of experience and then the question of fit becomes not the right college the question of fit becomes how do i give you a learning pathway that makes sense for you given who you are and where you are at this moment in your life so for one student that may in fact be To go live on a campus and have that traditional residential experience. That's the minority of students, as I mentioned earlier. That's not most college students today. For another student, it might be um, a two-year degree that gets them into a job that allows them to start making the kind of income and gives them a kind of security that allows them to have a better life and then they progress towards getting their bachelor's over time. So it's not a neat go all the way through the end of four years. But you mentioned the word ecosystem, which I often use. What we're now seeing is there's a whole world of universities and colleges, and they're going through enormous changes. But now there's all kinds of new providers, and they don't look like colleges. And it could be anything from Grow with Google, which is doing you know really well-done uh, micro-credentials, so something less than a traditional degree, Micro credentials in technology fields, and have you know, 150 large-scale employers who say we will honor those credentials even though they don't come out of a college, and we'll factor them into our hiring. And for a lot of young people who have a technology technology bent, that free credential that lands them a job in, in a tech area that they like that might be very appealing. And if they come from an underserved community or a low-income family, it may be the best option for them. Now, college degrees are not going away in terms of their importance. So we could get pretty wonky pretty quickly. Um, There's a lot of work to be done around making sure that micro-credentials are stackable, that you can understand where they fit on a pathway to an eventual degree. But the idea that you come out of high school and you necessarily go to a traditional college for four years and go into a career that doesn't change, that feels so enormously outdated. And in fact, what we see in the workforce is that nature of work is changing so fast now skills are timing out so quickly, even if you don't change your job, your job will change out from under you every three to four to five years now. We are going to have to think about learning as something you don't do between high school and work. We have to think about learning as something you do periodic on a periodically on a very regular basis all of your career. We're going to be upskilling, reskilling, changing your pathway, etc. So higher ed's going to build out and it is building out a kind of new ecosystem. So there are almost a million micro credentials on the market now. Now it's messy and making sense of what you know what's a what's a certification versus a micro credential versus a nano degree versus a micro bachelors which is an edx phrase like because this is still relatively new, despite that big proliferation of almost a million micro-credentials, we still don't quite have a clear taxonomy so that a consumer could look and say, okay, I know what that is, and I know what it gets me. So that's getting worked out, and we don't even have agreed-upon nomenclature. But look at those are the first two things that happens with a new movement. This is a new movement towards sub So that will happen. First thing that I you Eve had to do, that name all the animals, right? Get to start uh-huh. to make sense of this crazy world. We're going right. to, we'll make sense of this crazy world. Um, so you'll have universities and colleges. They'll remain as important. They'll remain very important, but you're going to have all these other providers, coding, boot camps, Google, IBM, Skill Build, College for America, our program, and lots of others. You have traditional um, courses and degree pro- pathways, but you also have competency-based pathways now. So Western Governors University has, you know, it's not about what courses you take; it's about what competencies you master, which allow you to go a lot faster if you if you have the ability to demonstrate uh, those competencies. So we're also seeing that, and then you know, new earn while you learn models. So uh, get the credential to get you a job, but then work and have your employer pay for it as you go along. Those are becoming sort of appealing and more common. So it's it's evolving. Your point is we're in the middle of it's sort of like the way climate change is to our physical world there's a whole sort of climate change sort of impact on the higher ed ecosystem in the middle of climate change it's kind of hard to know exactly how it's going to play out you just know it's big in higher ed today we know it's big it's still not clear how it's going to play out i think it's largely going to be better for students because you're going to get more choices you're going to be able to have different pathways you're going to be able to find pathways that fit better for you. And that includes being more affordable and not and giving you debilitating debt.
0: That's a great analogy, um, like climate change, because, yeah, it's like it's a culture. It's almost a culture shift. Right. People are starting to think about education differently.
1: Just as we're thinking about the way we live in the physical world differently, you know, like we compost and recycle in a way we didn't 15 years ago. And. My next vehicle will be an EV, right? My university car, I'm waiting for, uh, you know, electric vehicle that, that I'll have. And um, we're looking at how do we make our campus uh, energy neutral, you know, uh, carbon neutral mm-hmm. and within five years. It's a huge heavy lift, but we're, we're in a race against time. Um, yeah. Thankfully, the higher ed climate change is less existential and it will just, I like think, get better and better for students.
0: That's what this podcast is about, finding the path that's best for each yeah. student, whether it is college or a trade school or a micro-credential or whatever it might be. You mentioned College for America. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was blown away when I read about that program. And I, no matter what age, listeners, no matter what age you are, if you're considering ed- more education, this is definitely something worth investigating.
1: So uh, College for America was our first competency-based degree program. Uh, instead of courses, everyone thinks about courses and credit hours, right? And the credit hour is this weird thing. It was never meant for how it's used today. It was meant to figure out how to pay equitable pensions to retired faculty. And yet, we construct whole degrees based on credit hours. And 120 credit hours is a bachelor's degree, 60 is as an associate's degree. It's how we allocate faculty workloads. You know, you teach three, three credit hour courses, and that's your workload. It's how we schedule our rooms. And yet, what it's really good at is measuring how long someone sat at a desk. It's not really good at anything else. It's not a good measure of actual learning. And when we created Culture for America, we said, let's flip this. Uh, right now, higher ed's built on a model where time is fixed, here's the semester, here's the schedule, fixed, and learning is variable. You can get an A, somebody else can get a B. Some, like Learning is the variable. And, so, and we said, what if you could flip that and say, learning is fixed. In order to progress you have to show mastery of the learning but time will be variable if you can go much faster why would it make you sit for more weeks if you need more time why would we deprive you of more time you know and there's uh bloom did really good research on this and what he showed was that when you look at sort of grade curves that are fixed in time right at the end of a 15-week semester the final grades come in and you can put them on a curve you can plot them if you simply add more weeks Everybody moves to the right. In other words, everyone's capable of doing A-level work. Why would time be the thing that you consider? Why wouldn't show us you can get there? And in fact, I would even argue, my experience as a teacher, is that sometimes the student who has to work harder and struggles more actually owns the learning more fully. It's you know, it's like it's in the struggle. Like for me, almost all the most important things in my life. Have in so many in many instances been the hardest things. If they right like so, so I think you know with College for America, we said instead of 120 credit hours, let's think about 120 competencies. And there's you know a group of competencies around communication, the ability to uh, work well with others, ethical reasoning, um, quantitative competencies, writing competencies, and. You know, I routinely talk to CEOs and heads of HR and I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, raise your hand if you've hired a recent college graduate from a really good school who doesn't write very well. Every hand in the room goes up um, because a transcript and credit hours actually don't tell us very much. But when I can say, I'll give you a student that I'll stand behind 120 claims for what that student can do with what she or he knows, they love that um so we were first adopted by large employers like anthem insurance and the beauty of course is that for adults you know a whole lot you have a lot of competencies coming in why would we make you sit in courses where you already know the material in this case we'd say uh you know i'll give you an example betsy you you're working on your degree finally but for the last 15 years you were the bookkeeper in your family's business i bet you could do a lot of these math competencies these quantitative competencies and you do the projects and if we can say yep you nailed it move on and you get those credits under your belt and so we had students go from zero credits to um, an associate's degree in under a year where it's typical associates would be twice as long because that's a they game changer working.
0: for people oh especially God. for working people
1: well it's also a really i have a book coming out in October through Harvard Education Press and in it I argue the sort of revelation I had in this work which is time is really a source of inequity in education because if you are poor everything takes longer if you don't have a washer dryer it takes longer to have clean clothes if you don't have a car it takes longer to get groceries right everything takes longer and yet we put poor people low-income people into programs that are inflexible about their time, and even their place. So if I, you know, if I am a low-income person working in a fast-food restaurant, I might not even know my schedule next week, and yet I have to be at a certain place at a certain time. We had this, and I opened the book with this conversation I had with a remarkable young woman, who was a single mother from the poorest neighborhood in Boston, Roxbury. Um, she very little social capital. That is, she didn't have savings. The average net wealth of an African-American person in Boston is $8, according to the Boston Federal Reserve. Think about that for a minute. When, the Boston, when that report was published a couple of years ago, the Boston Globe the next day had a front page story saying that wasn't a typo. It's $8. She was poor, right? And she didn't have family around, she wasn't from the area originally. And her daughter, her eight-year-old daughter at the time, had chronic respiratory uh, illness. And she had transcripts from Roxbury Community College and Bunker Hill Community College, right? They're perfectly fine schools, but they're all Fs and Ws, withdrawals. And if you looked on paper, you would say, this is not somebody who's either ready for college work or capable of college work, et cetera. When we put her in our program, which isn't based on time, right? There's no class schedule because you're not, you're not keeping a schedule, you're doing competencies. If you need to stop for a couple of weeks, that's fine. Then when her daughter gets sick, she simply stopped because there was no penalty. In her other schools, when her daughter was sick and she missed a week of class, she missed exams, she missed assignments, she fell behind, she could never catch up. So what she said to me was, what I love about this program is I set the schedule. I just take a pause and there's no penalty. Well, then it turns out She was incredibly bright. She raced to a degree. She was gritty and smart and persevering. But this was college built for her. She could Mm. study when she wanted. She could come into the center. We did this with a partner called Duet in Boston. She could come into the center when she wanted, not when they told her she had to be there for a class meeting. And she could avail herself of the resource she wanted when she needed to. So that's what I mean by student-centered education and it really starts to undo the inequities because having time and flexibility in time is an absolute privilege in america today that's what wealthy people have
0: now is college for america available online as well or is it only in person so
1: no it's actually mostly available in online or hybrid form so with our younger students it actually works much better in a hybrid model so Uh, the Da Vinci School in L.A., Duet in Boston, Peloton in Texas, the Nobel schools in Chicago, they all work with us to offer it. But what happens is we deliver all of the content, all of the competencies, all of the assessments, all of the learning supports, the content materials, library access, et cetera, online, but they provide the wraparound services face-to-face, so advising, access to technology, uh, you know, even food in some cases, for some of our low-income students. And that's the perfect combination. It's actually, we use a version of that program in our GEM program, which brings college degrees to refugee learners in Lebanon, Africa, and uh, refugee camps, some of them the most godforsaken places I've ever visited. And it rem- it, it's, it's remarkable watching what happens when you put that kind of model in the hands of learners so much
0: good stuff going on i i could ask you questions all afternoon but i won't do that because i know you have other things to do besides talk to me one last question do you have any thoughts advice words of wisdom for parents or really anyone who's thinking about starting college going back to college um investigating their options from from your point of view what do you think is most important i know we talked about jobs to be done are there other things to consider
1: well, the John T. Dunn framework, and I'm Michael Horn, is a is a dear friend, and highly recommend his book because it does use that lens on the questions you want to ask yourself. But I think you know, so often we render the college selection process simply a matter of you know uh, reach schools, you know, yeah. uh, sort of schools we expect to get into, and then safety schools, you know, and it's just such a overly so it doesn't do anything it's, it's just terrible it's a terrible methodology so i would want to sit down with my son or daughter and really try to spend time on listening to them and understanding what is it what are the jobs that they want done and you know they don't always know but parents often do know and so think about making that list and then start that search based on that and understand that your options are broader um, than sometimes i think people understand and I've counseled students not to come to us because I was convinced that we weren't the right place to do it, the job they needed done. Sometimes it was financial. It's Like, you know what? We're a private school. You need to think about debt. Let me talk to you about how to think about that. Think through that. Schools often obscure. You know, you really want to know what's my annual out of pocket and what is my expected indebtedness and what will be the monthly payment? Cause that's when it gets real. Like, oh, wait a minute. You know, $800 a month. And I want to be an early childhood educator, which is a great job. You just don't want to take on that kind of debt to do it, right? You have to think about that. So when you do that, and you start saying, well, look it, maybe it's community college for the first two years because now I can lower the total cost of my attendance. Maybe it's community college for the first year a residential school for two years because I want some of that coming of age campus experience, but I'll get a job at the end of my junior year and finish up online." And I'll do a kind of earn while I learn model. Um, there's a lot of flexibility for self-advocacy, self-advocating families and students. And I think increasingly we're going to be comfortable with the kind of mixing and matching. I would call it a curating of your learning pathway, really picking the pieces that make best sense for you. Um, that is still hard for those of us, for those folks who don't work in higher ed and don't necessarily know all of the options that are out there um so that's where the homework comes in i think it's really trying to understand all the ways this could work
0: yeah and there's a lot of sources out there that there's a lot of noise in the air but there's also some really good books and some good websites but i think you're right i think it all boils down to what are the jobs to be done what's the best fit and curating that formula whatever that ends up looking like
1: yeah and i think I have a, I mentioned a book coming out in October, but I have a second book coming out in 22 that is asking a harder question of myself and my colleagues. But I'm going to come, maybe it's a good finishing place for us, Betsy, because the question it's asking is, how does this industry, how does higher education in America learn to love students again? Um, because I'm not sure it does today. If I think about the kind of emotional, psychological, pressure, even violence, I might argue, material pressures that higher ed puts on students, everything from the admissions process and this feeling like your self-worth, who you are as a person is being voted on with the acceptance rejection letter. Um, If I think about the amount of debt, $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, second only to home mortgages. If I think about the exploitation of graduate students, just I could go down the long list it's weird that an industry so full of people who care deeply about students is one that, on the face of it, doesn't appear to love students very much. And I think this question of, if I were sort of, you know, I know this is gonna sound very fuzzy and, and sort of new agey, but if I'm looking at campuses and I'm talking about the possibilities for students, the question was like, does this look like a place that loves its students? And how do I? Why do I think that? And it's not about how fancy the buildings are. It's not about its status. In fact, I would argue that the most elite institutions, um, in my experience, don't evidence much love for their undergraduates. They have more love for their graduates, by the way, their graduate students. But the best teaching schools, undergraduate-wise, in America, for me, are not the large elites. They're not the flagships. Now, they have lots of other attributes that are wonderful, and we need them, but. But I think there, I think I would look at other things, you know. So there was a wonderful, um, now long deceased editor for higher ed at the New York Times called Lauren Pope. And Lauren Pope loved small colleges because fundamentally he thought those are places that are still live and die by their undergraduates. They're not distracted by D1 Saturday afternoon football game sports. They're not distracted by research and kind of how much grant money they bring in. They really sort of wake up every day and think about the development of young men and women. And I was always a fan of Lawrence thinking about this. He loved a lot of schools that most people haven't heard of, because he thought that they were sort of extraordinary places in terms of the way they loved their students. And I think that's the challenge for our industry, just as it's a challenge for American healthcare or the American judicial system. Those are both systems. All three are systems designed to serve people and yet on a day-to-day and routine basis seem to evidence a kind of lack of love for the people they're meant to serve. Sorry, that's very preachy and pedantic, forgive me, but that's the provocative question. So there's a lot you can look at as a parent and as a prospective college student, but in the end, does this, is this a place that feels like it loves its students? And, and, and what is the evidence of that? How do I know it?
0: Yeah, I don't think that's preachy at all. I think that's powerful because in the end, we want our kids to be happy, and we want them to thrive, and we want them to learn. And yeah, I actually did an episode not that long ago about Lauren Pope's Colleges That Change oh, Lives. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's the name of the book.
1: I couldn't remember. I was yeah. searching for it yeah. as I was talking about them. Colleges That Change Lives, yeah.
0: yeah. And I spoke to um, a woman who worked in admissions and went on the caravan tour with him from school to school. So it was a really great episode, and yeah. again, a lot of these schools i was like i never even heard of that and they had so many unique and interesting qualities and to your point clearly cared about the students um so great advice really really (laughs) great advice yeah Um, well
1: it was a delight to be with you
0: yeah and i'm gonna put lots of links in the show notes including a link to southern new hampshire university a link to where they people can find out about your book um what about social media twitter linkedin any of that
1: yeah i mean i'm on twitter um there'll be links to the book if people are interested my my twitter name is s-n-h-u-p-r-e-z snooprez
0: Um, (laughs) okay that sounds uh, great
1: you're more likely to find out you know what i'm growing in my garden and what i'm cooking on a given day than anything profound but feel free to feel free to look
0: (laughs) I love that. I love the president notes where you talk about what you're listening to and and what you're reading.
1: Yeah, that's a funny one that people get a lot of feedback. It's what I'm watching, what I'm listening to, what I'm reading. And uh, kind of my pop picks, as as it's called. Uh, Pop picks, right. I get great suggestions from students.
0: Well, thanks again for being here. I'm super grateful.
1: My pleasure, Betsy.
0: Well, that was enlightening, informative, and super helpful. I hope you feel the same. As a parent of teens who may or may not attend college, it gave me a lot of hope to hear Dr. LeBlanc talk about the positive change going on in higher education. Coincidentally or not, I just wrote an article about flex learning for a local parenting magazine. Isn't that what we're really talking about here today? Curating an educational path that is student-centered, equitable for all learners, and that allows students to choose what, when, where, and how they learn. Trading credit hours for competencies is brilliant. Why make our kids waste time and money in classes they don't need if they can prove mastery? And learning doesn't end the day you are handed your college diploma. It goes on and on throughout your career and, frankly, throughout your life, particularly in today's world. I've done several podcast episodes about the changing world of work and the ongoing need for upskilling and reskilling. This seems simple, doesn't it? Except it's not. It should be. Institutions of higher education need to roll up their sleeves and find ways to make learning more accessible, more affordable, and more flexible. And as Dr. LeBlanc so beautifully stated, American higher education needs to learn to love students again. Thanks for tuning in today. As always, I'm really grateful that you're listening, and I'd love it if you would follow or subscribe to the High School Hamster Wheel podcast in your favorite podcast player. I welcome your feedback and would love to hear any ideas you have for future episodes. Be sure to check out the show notes at highschoolhamsterwheel.com slash 8-9, where I will include all links mentioned during this episode. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel podcast.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Candy Apple Advocacy, the podcast for parents who want to advocate for their children's education. I'm Jim Mallard, and I'm here with my wife, Tabby.
0: We've been through the trenches of raising kids in the school system and know how tough it can be. But we also know how essential it is to advocate for your child and their education.
1: That's why we started this podcast, to share our experiences and insights with other parents to help them become more effective advocates for their children.
0: On this podcast, we'll talk about everything from general education, general school advice, the school choices you have available to you, different education styles, individualized education plans, 504s, and all those key terms that you've heard but don't know what they are. We'll talk to experts. We'll also talk to parents and hear their stories. We'll share our stories with you and give you tools you need to be a strong advocate
1: for your child and yourself. Whether you're a new parent or have been in the game for a while, we invite you to join our community. Let's advocate together.